0: Chapter 41 is one of the great gospel chapters in the Old Testament. And if you don't believe that at the beginning of my sermon, I hope and expect you to argue with anyone who says otherwise when we get to the end of my sermon. We have gotten to this place in Joseph's life because in chapter 37, Joseph is Jacob's favorite son, his brothers hate him for that. So they throw him down in a pit and they sell him into slavery. In chapter 39, Joseph is a slave then in Potiphar's house in Egypt, but God is with him and he prospers him. He gives him success until Potiphar's wife falsely accuses him of trying to lie with her and he is thrown down into the pit of prison. And In chapter 40, which we looked at last week, also God is with Joseph in prison and he prospers him there. Joseph helps the cupbearer by favorably interpreting his dream. And the cupbearer is supposed to tell Pharaoh about Joseph's innocence, but he forgets about Joseph. So this morning in chapter 41, God remembers Joseph, and Joseph goes from a prisoner in Egypt to the prime minister, if you will, of Egypt in one super long chapter. This chapter is as long as, or longer than, both of last week's chapters put together. So we've got a lot of reading to do, and there's a reason why it's a long chapter. It's quick and easy for Moses to provide information about Joseph's release. He gets out of prison, and his ascent. Pharaoh names him prime minister. But it's not so quick and easy to represent God's sovereignty in Joseph's life. So the repetition that happens over and over is there for a reason. Not to tell us, but to show us that God made promises and has fixed things in place to accomplish his covenant purposes in Joseph's life and beyond through his spirit and for his glory. So it takes more words than to just say God is sovereign. Moses wants to show us God's sovereignty in action. So, because that's what's in here, you're not allowed to be bored when we read chapter 41. You're not allowed to be impatient As we read chapter 41, because the repetition is not redundant, it is reinforcing. It is reinforcing. I want to read this this morning in three sections. They're parsed out in the sermon outline. If you want to follow along, let's begin in Genesis chapter 41. After two whole years, Pharaoh dreamed that he was standing by the Nile. And behold, there came up out of the Nile seven cows, attractive and plump, And they fed in the reed grass. And behold, seven other cows, ugly and thin, came up out of the Nile after them and stood by the other cows on the bank of the Nile. And the ugly, thin cows ate up the seven attractive, plump cows. And Pharaoh awoke. And he fell asleep and dreamed a second time. And behold, seven ears of grain, plump and good, were growing on one stalk. And behold, after them sprouted seven ears, thin and blighted by the east wind. And the thin ears swallowed up the seven plump and full ears. And Pharaoh awoke, and behold, it was a dream. So in the morning his spirit was troubled, and he sent and called for all the magicians in Egypt and all its wise men. Pharaoh told them his dreams, but there was none who could interpret them to Pharaoh. Then the chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, I remember my offenses today. When Pharaoh was angry with his servants and put me and the chief baker in custody in the house of the captain of the guard, we dreamed on the same night, he and I, each having a dream with its own interpretation. A young Hebrew was there with us, a servant of the captain of the guard. When we told him, he interpreted our dreams to us, giving an interpretation to each man according to his dream. And as he interpreted to us, so it came about. I was restored to my office. And the baker was hanged. Then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph. And they quickly brought him out of the pit. And when he had shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came in before Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have had a dream and there is no one who can interpret it. I have heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Joseph answered Pharaoh, It is not in me. God will give Pharaoh... A favorable answer then Pharaoh said to Joseph behold in my dream I was standing on the banks of the Nile seven cows plump and attractive came up out of the Nile and fed on the reed grass seven other cows came up after them poor and ugly and thin such as I had never seen in all the land of Egypt and the thin and ugly cows ate up the first seven plump cows but when they had eaten them no one would have known that they had eaten them for they were still as ugly as at the beginning then I awoke "'I also saw in my dreams seven ears growing on one stalk, full and good. Seven ears, withered and thin, and blighted by the east wind, sprouted after them. "'And the thin ears swallowed up the seven good ears. "'And I told it to the magicians, but there was no one who could explain it to me. "'Then Joseph said to Pharaoh, "'The dreams of Pharaoh are one. "'God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. "'The seven good cows are seven years.' The famine will consume the land, and the plenty will be unknown in the land by reason of famine that will follow, for it will be very severe. The doubling of Pharaoh's dreams means that the thing is fixed by God, and God will shortly bring it about. Now, therefore, let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man and set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh proceed to appoint overseers over the land and take one-fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt during the seven plentiful years." And let them gather all the food of these good years that are coming, and store up grain under the authority of Pharaoh for food in the cities, and let them keep it. That food shall be in a reserve for the land against the seven years of famine that are to occur in the land of Egypt, so that the land may not perish through the famine. Well, it's been two whole years since the cupbearer walked out of prison, a free man... Into the court of Pharaoh, he has forgotten all about Joseph until Pharaoh has two dreams and he needs an interpreter. None of the magicians and sorcerers, none of the priests and wise men of Egypt can interpret Pharaoh's dreams. The content of Pharaoh's dreams is divinely encrypted. As Joseph said in chapter 40, do not interpretations belong to God? But that's when the cupbearer remembers Joseph. He remembers in kind of a funny way, oh, I remember my offense, I remember my shortcoming. I forgot to tell you about the young man Joseph. And, and he tells Pharaoh about Joseph, who is a foreigner, not an Egyptian, a slave, not a free man, and a prisoner, not a contributing member of society. But he has a customer testimonial. The cupbearer can testify for himself and on behalf of Pharaoh's former baker that Joseph interprets dreams accurately. Now, Pharaoh is so deeply troubled by his dreams, so distraught on top of that because he can find no interpreter, he's kind of just like the the way the cupbearer and the baker were back in prison, that he sends for Joseph, this nobody, to be quickly brought up from When Pharaoh speaks, it happens. Joseph is whisked out of prison and into the court of Pharaoh. Yay, Joseph. Yay. He's finally going to get a hearing before Pharaoh. You know, it's a one-shot appearance. And if there's anything that Joseph wants right now, it is to be seen as indispensable to Pharaoh. He needs Pharaoh to need him, otherwise, back to prison. So we read in verse 15. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have had a dream, and there is no one who can interpret it. I have heard it said of you, that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Joseph answered Pharaoh, It is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. Hmm. Why doesn't Joseph just say, yes, yes, I can? It's not exactly a lie to let Pharaoh go on thinking what he's thinking. But to Joseph, it's not what Pharaoh is thinking. That matters, but what is true of God? Whether Pharaoh thinks it or not. Look at Joseph's profound devotion to God at this critical moment in his life. Making less of himself, making more of God when it may not help him in his earthly circumstances. You know, as we read the story on the surface, it looks like it's Joseph who's desperate, but he's not. It's Pharaoh who's desperate. Pharaoh, the king of the world's only superpower nation at the time. Egypt is the pinnacle of civilization at this time. He, Pharaoh, tells lowly Joseph, the foreign slave, prisoner, nobody, his dreams. In front of all of the court in front of all of the disappointing magicians of Egypt. The dreams God gives Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, are about Egypt. The Nile River is the symbol of Egypt. And there's a god of the Nile. The cows that come up out of the Nile, there's an Egyptian cow god, and there's an Egyptian grain god for the stalks. These are pagan gods, the same pagan gods, that will one day be defeated by God through Pharaoh through Moses in the ten plagues. Different Pharaoh. And the priests to these gods cannot interpret Pharaoh's dreams, but Joseph's God can. We've heard the two dreams twice now. Once by Moses, the narrator, and now by Pharaoh in his recounting of him. The seven fat cows and fat ears of grain represent seven years of abundance in Egypt. The seven ugly cows and the seven ugly ears of grain represent seven years of famine in Egypt. What is happening here? What is happening is that God is graciously informing Pharaoh of Egypt about the future. But it takes someone who knows God to decrypt the message. So Joseph says in verse 25, God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. And in verse 28, God has shown to Pharaoh what he is about to do. There will be seven years of super incredible abundance in Egypt, better than any years they've ever had, followed by seven years of extreme, severe famine, so bad that they will wipe out any memory of any good year ever. The two dreams mean the same thing. And it's the doubling of these dreams, Joseph says, the repetition that emphasizes that these things are fixed. God has fixed these things, and they will come about soon. Notice that Joseph is not just predicting the future. Joseph is preaching. Joseph is preaching the superiority of his sovereign God over Pharaoh, over Egypt, over Egypt's wives' men, over Egypt's gods. And it's urgent. Joseph sees clearly not only the problem, but a solution. Joseph has been a problem solver and a project manager as a slave in Potiphar's household, and then in prison for a total of 13 years. And he has a plan which immediately presents to Pharaoh. He says... Select a wise and discerning man and give him responsibility over and authority. Levy a 20% tax on all produce during the seven years of abundance. Then store it and ration it out during the years of famine and thus save Egypt. Don't you hear the echoes of a gospel in that? An all-consuming famine is coming, but a superabundant provision has been made. Making salvation available if you will have it. After the seven years of famine, Egypt is going to have to start over. The land's going to be wiped out. All the fields will be wiped out. Even if they do store up grain, that's what's happening. The question is will Egypt make it to that new start? Will they do in time of abundance what they need to do so that they will make it? through the time of judgment to the new start. In order to understand the profound significance of Joseph's story, Joseph's gospel story in chapter 41, we need to read it through three lenses. Here's lens number one. What happens to Joseph here is what happens to everyone who trusts God. What happens to Joseph here is what happens to everyone who trusts God. God, Joseph is delivered from the pit and given a place of joyful service before the king. Joseph is a picture of saved sinners. Sinners justified by faith in Christ. One theologian points out five things that happened to Joseph here. One, he is thoroughly acquitted and publicly justified. He is given highest preeminence. All must bow to him. He is given a name and a family and is exalted on high. And all the world was to look to Joseph so that a report went out that said, go to Joseph. Just as the gospel of Jesus Christ is to go out on all the earth. And so, lens number two, you see, when you look at Joseph you see not only a picture of what it means to be justified by faith in Christ, but you also see, when you look at Joseph, a picture of Christ himself, the Savior. It's no accident that Joseph looks like everyone who's justified by faith in Christ, because Joseph looks like Jesus Christ himself. Salvation is coming to Israel and the whole earth in Joseph's life, in his suffering. And in his exaltation. Joseph's life is a picture of the gospel. Here's lens number three. Joseph is the spirit-filled man we're looking for in verse 38. We haven't quite gotten there. Verse 38 says this. Pharaoh says, Can we find a wise and discerning man in whom is the Spirit of God? In whom is the Spirit of God. The last time we heard the phrase... In Genesis, the Spirit of God was when the Spirit of God was hovering over creation. In Genesis chapter 1, the Spirit of God was at work in creation. Here, the Spirit of God is at work in re-creation. It's a glorious thing to see God pouring out His Spirit on Joseph... To bring him up out of the pit, to exalt him before the king, to save nations from starvation. It's an even greater and more glorious thing to see God pour out his spirit at the resurrection and ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ. When God pours out his spirit on his people, and the gospel explodes beyond Israel on the day of Pentecost. When we read this chapter through those three lenses, then we see that God is demonstrating things through Joseph's life. One of the things that God is demonstrating is that salvation comes through a suffering servant. Salvation comes through a suffering servant. Remember Joseph at age 17? He was immature and a little little boastful. Then he entered the school of suffering. He was beloved by his father, but rejected by his own brothers and sold into slavery. He was righteous and innocent in Potiphar's house, but he was falsely accused and thrown into prison. Now, when he finally arrives in Pharaoh's court at age 30, he has been matured by the Spirit through suffering. He's humble, patient, and wise in the Spirit. Jesus was beloved by his Father, but rejected by his own. He spoke only the truth and was mocked and ridiculed. No charge of disobedience can be made against Jesus, and yet the writer of Hebrews tells us that Jesus learned obedience through suffering. Jesus is the ultimate Spirit-filled man who learned to humble himself under his Father's hand. And so it is with all of God's children. There is always suffering to be endured because that is how the Spirit works. To be Spirit-filled children of God, we too must pass through the school of suffering as our Savior did. There is no Spirit-filled person without suffering. Christ gives us His Spirit to walk with us through suffering. So that we will learn obedience and humility. So that we will learn, as Joseph did, to live for Christ's glory and his gospel. Don't turn your nose up at this gospel that includes suffering as if there is an easier gospel that saves somewhere else. There has always been a cross before the crown. And in this school of suffering... God is demonstrating that a man of the Spirit learns to wait for the Spirit. A man of the Spirit learns to wait on the Spirit. Think back to the beginning of the chapter. Why did the cupbearer say, I remember my offenses today? Today. Why not the day before? Or a year before. What if the cupbearer had told Pharaoh the day he walked out of prison, Hey, Pharaoh, okay, there's a slave, a foreigner in prison who says he's innocent and he wanted me to tell you. What would Pharaoh have said? Everyone in prison says they're innocent, right? <clears throat> Is this really what you want to spend your first day on? Him or me, your Pharaoh. So what? So what? It wasn't God's time. It wasn't God's time. God will act when the time comes. And when the time comes, God sends His Spirit to do what needs to be done. And what needed to be done? Pharaoh needed to have a dream. And when he did, God sent his spirit and Pharaoh had a dream. And when he did, things began to move. You see, Joseph and the cupbearer and Pharaoh, they're all just spinning their wheels. But when the time is right, God sends his spirit and the spirit gives Pharaoh a dream. And all the spinning parts suddenly gain traction. And the result was that a spirit-filled man learned to wait on the spirit of God. Is that not true of Jesus our Savior? Was he not led into the wilderness by the Spirit to be tempted? And he waited there until the Spirit led him out of that place by the angels that ministered to him. Did Jesus not set his face like flint to go to Jerusalem as the Spirit led him? And He stayed or waited on that course and would not be turned from it, not to the right, not to the left. Did He not wait upon the cross? Even when they mocked Him, saying, He saved others, let Him save Himself. But He would not save Himself. He prayed, let this pass, pass from Me, and yet not My will, Your will. When God pours out His Spirit to bring salvation, to save His people... He leads his servant through the school of suffering. Are you enrolled in Joseph's school of suffering? Are you enrolled in Christ's school of suffering? Are you enrolled? Because it is the school of the Spirit, for all would be found with the Spirit in them. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of the death, thou art with me. School of suffering. There is for every child of God a cross before the crown. Every one of you. For us to bear, and to bear with joy in the Spirit. Let's pick up the story in verse 37. This proposal pleased Pharaoh and all his servants. And Pharaoh said to his servants, Can we find a man like this in whom is the Spirit of God? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house, and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards to the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand and clothed him in garments of fine linen and put a gold chain around his neck. And he made him ride in the second chariot and they called out before him, Bow the knee! Thus he set him over all the land of Egypt. Moreover, Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh and without your consent no one shall lift up a hand or a foot in all the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh called Joseph's name zaphnath paneah and he gave, him a marriage. he gave him in marriage Asenath, the daughter of Potipharah, priest of On. So Joseph went out over the land of Egypt. Joseph was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And Joseph went out of the presence of Pharaoh and went through all of the land of Egypt. During the seven plentiful years, the earth produced abundantly. And he gathered up all the food of those seven years which occurred in the land of Egypt and put the food in the cities. He put in every city the food from the fields around it. And Joseph stored up grain in great abundance, like the the sand of the sea, until it ceased to be measured, for it could not be counted. You can almost visualize the scene, can't you? Pharaoh in his court, hmm, but where can we find such a man, right? Hmm, a discerning man, a wise man. Where can we find a man in whom is the Spirit of God? And Pharaoh's eyes pan the room, wallpapered with Egypt's failed wise men, and his eyes finally land on Joseph. Joseph, God gave you his interpretation. God gave you wisdom and discernment to devise a plan of salvation. You are the Spirit-filled man. You are the spirit-filled man. And on the spot, Pharaoh promotes Joseph to rule over all of Egypt, his vice-regent. He gives Joseph rule over all things except Pharaoh himself. Joseph was 30 years old when he stored up the grain in great abundance, like the sand of the sea, until he ceased to measure it, for it could not be measured. What do those words sound like? They sound like the Abrahamic Covenant. See, God is blessing the nations through Joseph. Joseph is both a picture of covenant fulfillment and a picture of covenant promise. Joseph brings salvation from starvation to Egypt and Israel and the nations and the world. And Joseph points ahead to future spirit-filled leaders that Israel will need. we were meant to notice that Joseph is a new and better Adam you remember in Genesis chapter 3 that when he was tempted, Adam rebelled against God, choosing to decide for himself what was good and what was evil. Tell me you remember back that far. Yes, when he ate the tree of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. Those Hebrew words for good and evil are tov and ra. Tov is good, ra is evil. Those are the same words used in this passage, to describe the cows and the ears of grain in Pharaoh's dream. Though they have been translated as fat and ugly, they are tove and raw. They are good and evil. There are good cows and good grain, and there are evil cows and evil grain. And Joseph, the spirit-filled man, when tempted, is wise and able to discern good from evil. Adam had a wife provided for him, so does Joseph. Adam initially had two sons, so does Joseph. Adam fell when he was tempted by the woman, when Eve gave him the fruit to eat. Joseph withstands temptation of the woman when Potiphar's wife grasps him and says to him, lie with me. Joseph is fulfilling what Adam was supposed to be. And he is exalted to the position of vice-regent, second only to the king, which is the position that Adam had before God. Until he fell from it. Adam was intended by God to subdue the earth and cultivate the garden. But it is Joseph who is exercising dominion and God's exalted, spirit-filled man. So Joseph points us back to Adam, that he is better than. And he points us forward to the type of wise leaders that Israel will need in the future. Remember, we're not the first ones to read Genesis. Moses wrote Genesis. Moses wrote Deuteronomy, the whole Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, and he hands it to Israel, who is standing on Jordan's stormy banks, poised to enter the land and conquer it. And yet Moses, their leader, is dead. And it's hard for them to have the same confidence in their new leader, young Joshua, as they had in Moses. But they read this in Deuteronomy chapter 34, verse 9. And Joshua, the son of Nun, full of the spirit of wisdom, for Moses had laid hands on him. The Israelites need to see not only that Moses has appointed Joshua to lead, but that God has made Joshua a spirit-filled leader who's wise like Joseph. That's a confidence builder. Joseph is a precursor to Joshua. The courageous one. He's a precursor to Solomon, the wise one. He's a precursor to Daniel, who is also an interpreter of dreams in a foreign king's court. Joseph can see the purposes of God in the affairs of men and nations. Ultimately, he prefigures the wisdom of God who will be made flesh, the Lord Jesus Christ. So God demonstrates in Joseph that A man of the Spirit learns to glorify God. A man of the Spirit learns to glorify God. Joseph is the most exemplary man in all of Genesis. Do you agree with me? You should. But why? You might say, but why, Scott? Because I think Joseph is always quick to give glory to God. Joseph never takes glory for himself and always gives glory to God. He has learned by the Spirit through suffering not to seek his own glory, but to seek first the kingdom of God and his glory. The Spirit of God exalts God and Christ and not himself. That is the nature and the work of the Spirit. So, the Spirit of God in us exalts God and Christ, not us. Jesus humbled himself. And became a little lower than the angels in order that sinners might be lifted up from the pit of sin to glorify God. There's wisdom in this God-glorifying character. And we should have it. Only the spirit-filled man could tell Pharaoh what he needed to know. That's profound. Only the spirit-filled man could tell Pharaoh what he needed to know. And Joseph says, it is God who has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. Now, Pharaoh could say, well, if God has fixed things, if God has predestined things, well, I guess there's nothing for us to do except sit here and wait for them to happen. To which Joseph would reply... Yes, indeed, God has predestined these things. So we need to prepare. God has told us there is something for us to do. Let's go. Every Christian is indwelled by the Holy Spirit. Every Christian is filled with the Spirit and knows, in a basic sense, you know what God is about to do, don't you? the world is going to continue on for a while until Jesus returns. And then, Jesus will judge all the earth. There will be a heaven for those who have trusted in Christ, and there will be a hell for those who have not. God has shown you what He is about to do. And these things are fixed. So what is your response? Well, if these things are predestined, I guess we should just sit here with our hands folded and wait for Jesus. Of course not! Don't you hear the gospel call in that? If God is coming in judgment, there's something for us to do. We need to prepare. How? By preparing others. By proclaiming the gospel that saves. Today is not the day of judgment. Today is the day of salvation. If you don't know Christ this morning, look to him. Look to him. The Spirit of God is at work this morning in the hearts of those who would look to Christ. Hasn't the time come? Hasn't the time come? Isn't today the day for you to admit your sins to God? Isn't today the day to finally humble yourself and to begin to walk after Christ? I'm appealing to you. I'm not trying to shame you. I'm not trying to, to hold you up before the congregation. I'm appealing to you. Look to Jesus who died on the cross to fully atone for your sins against God. Look to Jesus who has conquered your enemies Of sin and death and the devil in His resurrection from the dead. Give yourself to Jesus and He will give you the very Spirit of God in your life. He'll do it. Today is the day of salvation for all who call on Jesus' name. Did you notice, you Spirit-filled Christians? Did you notice that Joseph is not changed when he gets his promotion? He's the same Joseph, bottom to top. His eyes were on God as a slave. His eyes were on God as a prisoner. And now he's Pharaoh's vice-regent, and his eyes are still on God. He continues on as a diligent servant, used by God in adversity. I wonder how many Christians you know Who started out committed to Christ and his church, but who no longer have the time because their concerns have shifted to something else. Their decisions and their calendar are controlled by some other people, some other place, some other activities. It's ironic, isn't it, to think that someone could be brought lower by a promotion, by things going well in their life. But it happens all the time. Joseph is a spirit-filled man. He's the model of Christ in the Old Testament. Trusting God. Faithful to God. Serving the plans and purposes of God. Always giving glory to God. We should be like that. We should be like that. Let's read the last section beginning in verse 50. Before the year of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph. Aseneth, the daughter of Potipharah, priest of On, bore them to him. Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh. For, he said, God has made me forget all my hardship and all my father's house. The name of the second he called Ephraim. For God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. The seven years of plenty that occurred in the land of Egypt came to an end, and the seven years of famine began to come. As Joseph had said, there was famine in all the lands, but in all the land of Egypt there was bread. When all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried to Pharaoh for bread. Pharaoh said to all the Egyptians, Go to Joseph. What he says to you, do. So when the famine had spread over all the land, Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians, for the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. Moreover, all the earth came to Egypt to Joseph to buy grain, because the famine was severe over all the earth. So before the famine, during the years of plenty, Joseph has two sons, and he gives them Hebrew names, Manasseh and Ephraim. Then, just as predicted, after seven years of plenty, there came seven years of famine. Not only in Egypt, but in all the lands. And yet, there was bread in Egypt. So when the people cried to Pharaoh for food, he told them, go to Joseph. Do whatever he says to you to do. And what does Joseph do for those who come to him? He opens up the storehouses of food. Not only to Egypt, but to all the earth very soon, to save Israel. Remember Joseph's dream of his brothers? Sheaves bowing down to his sheave. You know, one question we might ask is, has Joseph gone too far? Has Joseph become so Egyptian that he has lost his distinctiveness as a man of God under God's covenant? I mean, Pharaoh gives him a new position, new garments a new chariot Joseph gets a new name a new wife who bears him new sons but Moses signals to us that that is not the case by continuing to call him Joseph yes Pharaoh gave him a name but he's Joseph the issue with foreign wives it's never their ethnicity it's their religion but what we see is Joseph naming his sons. And he gives them Hebrew names. Egypt has not become his homeland, has it? It's the land of his affliction, Moses says. Pharaoh knows that Joseph is a man in whom the Spirit is the Spirit of God. That's why he promotes him. The God to whom Joseph has always given glory, he continues to give glory. See, Joseph lives and works in a culture that's not his own but he does not lose his own religious identity. He may walk like an Egyptian, but he walks like a spirit-filled Egyptian in the way of God. His life continues to fulfill God's covenant and promises God's covenant. Joseph lives a gospel life. A life through which God demonstrates that a man of the Spirit brings the comfort of the gospel. A man of the Spirit brings the comfort of the gospel. You know, it is not the vice regency or the lordly garments or the powerful signet ring that Joseph holds that brings him comfort. It's a baby. It's the babies that he holds which bring him comfort. He holds Manasseh, which means forget. And he says, God has made me forget all my hardship and all my father's house. It's a bittersweet statement. It is both a praise and a lament in one sentence. Joseph is still brokenhearted over the years lost from his father's house. But God has given him a family of his own. Then Joseph holds Ephraim, which means fruitful. And says, God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. This too is bittersweet. Joseph is committed to the covenant promises of God, so he knows. He is not in the promised land. But he is in the land that God has placed him in. Maybe Joseph wondered if all the best years of his life had been wasted. (laughs) 17 to 30. Maybe he wondered if if he was a total failure. His life was just a failure. No. That's not true. God has made me fruitful. Joseph says. This is the gospel. This is the gospel. Do you wonder about your wasted years, when you were angry at God, when you rejected God, all the days that you did not glorify God. God wastes nothing. At the right time in your life, The Spirit came to you to do the work of God in you. Christ is the Savior of sinners. He has saved you by His blood so that you can praise and glorify Him forever. So do it. Let's go. Don't look back. Look forward. Now you have comfort and confidence in Jesus and His gospel. Now you have joy and humility. So that you can be fruitful in service to your king. Now is not the time to look back on wasted years. Now is the time to proclaim the gospel to the whole world. Come to the one, perfect, spirit-filled man. Come to Jesus. He will open the storehouses and pour out his spirit upon you. Only Jesus can give you life. Come to Him and do whatever He says to you to do. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank You for the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank You for the reminder that suffering in our life is not a mistake. But it is the school in which the Spirit causes us To humble ourselves. And to wait on you. To give you glory. And to tell others about you. Orient us. To this. Make us your spirit filled people. To glorify you. In the proclamation of the gospel. To everyone. We pray this. For your glory, in Christ's name, amen.